welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week, I'm talking to Michelin-starred chef Tom Kerridge. In 2005, he and his wife Beth bought a rundown pub in Marlow called The Hand and Flowers. Within a year, he'd turned the business around and achieved a Michelin star. The second one was added in 2012, making The Hand and Flowers the first pub to ever gain two Michelin stars. The success of this venture led Tom to take on another pub, The Coach of Marlow, and these days he's also responsible for restaurants in Manchester and London and even owns a butcher's shop. He launched a food and music festival, Pub in the Park, in 2017, and he's been a regular on The Great British Menu and numerous other television programmes over the years. His brand new series, Saving Britain's Pubs with Tom Kerridge, has just begun on BBC. Tom's latest book, The Hand and Flowers Cookbook, was published by Bloomsbury on the 12th of November. Tom, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you very much, mate. Thanks for having us on. That was a, was a lovely intro. God, I sound busy. Yeah, I think you are probably quite busy. <laughs> yeah. With all of my interviews, I like to start by going right back in time. So I'm going to go back to your childhood, if you don't mind. You were born and raised in Gloucestershire. And after your parents divorced, you lived with your mum and your brother. What was life like? I mean, it was amazing. But I grew up, like I said, it was a single parent family. And it, it was on an estate opposite the school, which was in the middle of three council estates kind of space. But school life I loved, like not for the right reasons, I suppose. <laughs> I like, I, I loved, don't get me wrong, I loved school. I, I loved being the social aspect. I loved hanging around with the kids and the mates and that. But the education system really was, it didn't suit me i've got a short attention span and i don't do very well with just like being told something learning it by writing it down remembering it and repeating it to me it was always about being practical doing stuff i always knew i was going to be all right and i think my mum knew deep down that i was going to be okay i've always been pretty confident around people with conversation with doing something getting out there having a go at stuff i'm not scared of i'm scared of failure but I'm not scared of having a go, if that makes sense. I'm quite lucky that I've had that from an early age. And school was lots of fun, but it was because I was hanging out with naughty boys and, you know, just dossing about, really. You know, you'd sky of school and obviously smoke cigarettes behind the bushes outside the park. But I wasn't the naughtiest of naughty boys. I mean, there were some proper naughty boys. Like, <laughs> I like, it was good fun, though. So, and then growing up, my mum, she obviously took the role of both parents and was very supportive. You know, I went to play rugby on a Saturday and a Sunday and she'd always come along and be a part of that but she had two jobs she worked as a secretary during the day and then she worked in a pub in the evenings washing up and back in the 80s it was known as a latchkey kid I don't know if they're known as the same anymore like I'd let myself in and cook tea for myself and my brother I, by saying cook tea I'd put Finder's crispy pancakes in the oven and try not to burn them so you know not burn myself with the hot water from the kettle as I made a pot noodle that kind of food but it was it was a good grounding into and that first point for me of recognizing that when you put an effort into something there's a with food there's like a reward system there's something at the end you know you put an energy and an effort into doing something you get something back and that was very different to I suppose school at that point where it was about you were learning something and what's the end result a bit of paper with with a letter on it that gives you an ABC or 
yeah. maybe not those letters. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of gets to that point where it was much more about being practical and I thoroughly enjoyed that and that's where I wanted to be. So early life was always about just doing stuff, getting involved in doing stuff. And it's always been, it's been the same ever since, to be honest. It's been busy ever since, yeah. I, I think I probably know the answer to this question given what you've just said, but did you read much as a kid? Not really. I mean, books weren't... I was never the, the stupidest at school. I was always like I could read and write quite quickly. And, I, you know, I did all right in my GCSEs. It wasn't bad. But I was always... And still now, I find reading... When people are reading books and novels, it's quite... You become in your own world, don't you? Not introverted, but it does become, I suppose, very solo moment, aren't they? Nobody else is. It's not like you're watching a movie with your other half because you're both involved in that or you're both... And also, I tend to find if I've got time, I, I'll listen to music rather than read a book. And that was always the same when I was younger as well as a teenager. I'd rather be out and doing stuff. But I, I've, I've always loved books. And, and it's weird. I don't throw them away. Even if I read, like, trashy novels or whatever it is on, on holiday and that, I don't throw them away. I, I remember Nan and Grandad or having loads and loads of books from my mum's side. And there's something beautiful and tactile about books. So I love them very much, but I'm not an avid reader. And I wasn't as a child either. I was a doer. I struggle with sitting still anyway. So sitting down and sitting still and reading a book wasn't anything that I would really do just because there's always something else to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think these days, what's great, because obviously I'm a reader given that I own a bookshop, but I also really enjoy listening to books as well and, and yeah. talking about it. So I think we're really lucky these days that there's so much more accessibility to that kind of thing rather than just having to sit. As a kid though, you said you liked the Mr. Men book. Yeah, absolutely. As a, as a child, I was all right at reading. I, I, did, I did quite good from it from a young age. And my son, who's, you know, he's approaching five now and he's also very good. He's very good at you know, putting the words together. He's, he's doing very, very well. And, you know, the Mr. Men books, I always remember them because they were very vibrant. They were very bright in colour, very blocky. And the stories were always quite funny and quite interesting. And you could, you buy into characters and it's... They're very early novel cookbooks or movies because you understand the character and the position. And there's always at the end of it a moralistic twist and a turn. And you don't realise that until now where I'm reading them again with my little man, that how well written they are and how brilliant they are for kids and how they've stood the test of time. You know, I'm 47 years old and you're going, actually, this is this is brilliant. They're the same stories and it's so relevant to now, your understanding of how friendship should be and how you should treat each yeah. other and how everybody is equal, even if they're different and all of these sorts of things. That, they're, they're really good um, barometers and they're really good ways of setting a moral compass, I think, for kids at a young age. If they're reading into them and understanding them. And in fact, on my key ring, I, I've got uh, Mr. Bump is still on my key ring. He's my favourite. Yeah. He's my favourite too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. And I think that's the really, that's something I love about kids' books and the fact that they don't realise they're getting messages, but actually there's some kind yeah. of messaging going on there. Yes. Yeah. So those are the first books I was reading, uh, as a, uh, not only having as a story as a young one, but also as, um, as a kid reading. And also they're kind of like, there's levels to them, aren't there? You, you can move on to the next one and move on to the next one. And, you know, you get to build the characters. It's like an early experience of movies, like the Star Wars movies. You know, there's this character and there's this character. Yeah. And then they all build together and then they bump into each other in another story and all of that sort of stuff is great. And it's just, just really stood the test of time, which I really like. They have. In fact, one of the latest ones, the Mr. Men Meet the Dinosaurs one, is it actually caused a full-on argument in my house. Because <laughs> at bedtime... 
So I was reading it to my little man, Mr. Men Meets the Dinosaurs, and you're going through it. And Mr. Tickle at some point meets a pterodactyl. Um, AC, my son, this is, bear in mind, this is eight o'clock, we're in bed, and I'm reading it, the lights are off, and it's just a bedside lamp. And he goes, pterodactyl's not a dinosaur, daddy. It's like, yeah, yes, it is, mate. A pterodactyl's a dinosaur. No, no, it's not. A pterodactyl's not a dinosaur. It is a dinosaur. No, it's not a like any. It's not a dinosaur. Like gets so angry with it, and I'm like, no, it's a dinosaur. To the point where I'm, I'm arguing with a four-year-old, going, "It's a dinosaur." He's going, "It is not a dinosaur." I go, "Right, I'll show." How, look, the book says, "Mr. Men and the dinosaurs." That's a Mr. Man. That's a dinosaur. And he's like, "No, no, it's not." I go, "Right." I, I got my phone out. I said, "Right, we'll Google it. We'll find it. I'll find. I'll find you, Mr. Is so." I Google is a pterodactyl a dinosaur? Comes back. Pterodactyl is not a dinosaur, it's a reptile. Like, and there's even the, the pterodactyl is not a dinosaur song. And, every, like, and it was like, I was like, honestly, I was like, I'm so sorry, mate, you're right. And he goes, see, I told you, then rolled over and went to sleep. So even now I'm learning from Mr. Men books, but it's a lie. Pterodactyl is not a dinosaur, the Mr. Man book's wrong. I thought you were going to say it was just a complete ploy to not want to go to bed, but actually he was completely right. And then I asked him, so how, how do you know that? And he goes, uh, I saw it on my iPad. I mean, this is a difference between four-year-olds then and now, right? I mean, way, way more intelligent than me. Knows way more stuff. I mean, he knows more stuff than me now. <laughs> <laughs> so, go back to your childhood. So, you went through your teens. You were cooking at home for you and your brother. Life went on. You made the decision to go to culinary school at 18. Yeah, I, I went into a kitchen as an 18-year-old. I needed a job, so I started washing up and... I walked into this kitchen in a hotel and absolutely fell in love with it. It was amazing. The energy, the room, the dynamic of it, the left field way of life, the chefs, the way they were, the naughty, like naughty boys, you know. There's a theme. Yeah, but it is. But there's a huge sense of discipline within hospitality, within kitchens in particular. And it's very well structured. There's an understanding of hierarchy. There's an understanding you start to the bottom. And there is a defined ladder um, career path that for from a chef's point of view that you can quite easily follow and you can see where it can go and it's if you're 18 and you can see someone who's 38 you go well in 20 years time they've made this decision that decision got to there and they're in charge there's clarity there's a vision of going where you want it to be and how it can grow but it wasn't just that it was that kind of the energy that the whole of hospitality gives you know you're working late Fridays and Saturday nights and it's just so much about it is exciting and vibrant and fun and brilliant and hard work and, and the, the people that you meet are also full of energy and enthusiasm and it's adrenaline fueled there's pressure and it's also one of the most wonderfully eclectic and rich cultural environments that you'll ever come across it's the most embracing of everybody no matter of color no matter of race no matter of language no matter of religion sexuality no matter of economic background or education it's full of so many people that just want to get on doing an amazing job of what they do it's a, it is a bit like sport that it doesn't matter where you come from there's no inherent prejudice against anybody if you're good at doing it and you do really really well then you can do really really well and that's what makes it one of those industries that's got a fantastic vibe about it because the people that do well in it there's an energy level that when you all meet up you all have the same sort of 
reasoning for doing it and that's what makes it such an incredible industry to be in and you get i mean i'm so lucky i've traveled the world i've seen so many different spaces and met so many different people and and it's all because as an 18 year old i started washing up plates how amazing is that it is isn't it and just hearing you speak your passion about it always just so lovely i actually um i was at the food show in birmingham last year when you did some demonstrations and i remember at the time thinking guy you know you just really love your job don't you yeah, but I mean, how mental is that? Is that the one at the NEC? Yeah. So you're there, like, when that's packed and fully sold out and whatever, you're doing a cookery demonstration in front of one and a half thousand people, like at the NEC. And it's like, I mean, every time I walk on that stage, and I go on with Chris, who's opened the Hand of Flowers with me and worked with me for over 17 years now, and we work, we, we work together, and you go onto that stage, and we both look at ourselves and go, you know, we both were working in tiny little kitchen at the end of flowers. And then, you know, 15 years later, we stood here making an omelette or whatever it is in front of one and a half thousand people that are genuinely interested in food. And that's, it's crazy. And it just comes from, it comes from saying yes to doing everything, having a go, not being scared of failure, not being scared of learning from failure. That's probably the way to look at it and just doing stuff. And then, yeah, you find yourself in front of the NEC or in Singapore or in New York or, you know, and just because you're cooking an omelette. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but amazing. It is amazing. I understand that you were influenced or you were inspired by um, a book by Marco Pierre White when you were 18. Yeah, so White Heat was Marco Pierre White's major first cookery book, and it was such an incredible cookbook. And it's all the pictures of when he was at a restaurant called Harvey's, which is now Shea Bruce down in Wandsworth, and he had two mission stars there. And he was this young, vibrant, incredibly dynamic, phenomenal enigma of a man, an individual that was cooking such stunning food. And cookery books beforehand were very much almost textbook-like. They were almost school manual style cookery books with recipes in or any pictures or any visuals of them would be very, very kind of like straight and formal. And as you're learning to cook, even at college, you're learning to cook these classic French dishes and the food that you're being taught and the pictures that you're learning from the books are very, you know, the tall white paper hats and polished shoes and white aprons and, you know, very very regimental and which is fine but actually the kitchens that I was cooking in all of a sudden Marco's book came out and the first half of the book all the photographs in it are done by a fashion photographer who's no longer with us a guy called Bob Carlos Clark and all of these pictures are of the energy of the kitchen of the excitement of the banter of the of the rawness of it of the pain and the dark and the rings under people's eyes and the the hours the graft the but also the social energy the way that commitments are the play pot of, of creativity and, and adrenaline and aggression and laughter and it's all mixed with fire and knives and and shouting and you know real pushing and you go this is amazing made it look so exciting and vibrant and it made me realize that's the industry that i am in and then after that the the second half of the book are all the the pictures of marco's food with the recipes and they are gorgeous stunning timeless classics and then so without that book there's so many chefs my age that at 18 pick up that book and see it for the first time and just hugely fall in love with it you can't help yourself but just go wow and that book and marco was so 
important for the generation of chefs that are my age. It's so, so important because it was a real game changer. It was a seminal point in the world of cookbooks. Because those dishes, you can't replicate them at home. It's not a cookbook for at home. This is a cookbook for celebrating the industry. And that's really what it did. And it was amazing. Have you spoken to Marcus about how much of an influence that book had on you? Yeah, we've been in touch a number of times over the years. We used to speak quite a bit. He used to ring down the Flowers Kitchen phone on a Saturday night for, for like a, little, a quick conversation. And then we'd be on the phone for about an hour and a half. And I don't know really what we talk about. Or He knows he's influential. We, I talked about him being influential. And then in the original White Heat, there's lots of statements that have been made from Pierre Kaufman, from Raymond Blanc, from Alain and Michel Roux, and, you know, whoever it is that are talking about how great Marco is and little phrases and sentences Michel Bourdin and these great cooks and chefs and then he did a 25 year anniversary of it um must when must that be three or four years ago three years ago and when he re-released the book to celebrate the 25th anniversary he asked a couple of chefs myself and one of my great friends, a guy called Sat Baines who's got a restaurant a two Michelin star restaurant in Nottingham to also then add a a piece in the book so those quotes that there's also Michel Bourdin and now there's Tom Carriage and Sat Baines in there and that for me is just I mean it's amazing it's mind-blowing it's one of the most special things I've got winning two mission stars is amazing and that's a big team collective and and being asked to be in Marco's book is yeah it really is one of those very 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 special moments for me like it's amazing that that book that started my career i've been asked to be part of its re-release is amazing that is amazing and you, you touched on obviously the fact that you two mission stars which is just amazing congratulations as i understand it when you first took on the hand and flowers you actually wrote a letter to michelin saying to them I'm Tom Carriage, this is what I'm doing, just to let them know. But my understanding is you weren't really expecting the kind of accolades that you've gone on to get because it was a pub. Is that right? Yeah, very much. We didn't really know where we were. I, so I'd been quite fortunate. I opened the Hand of Flowers when I was 31 and I'd held a Mission Star for 18 months prior to that, two guides before it. I won a Mission Star at 29 years old and, and it's quite... Um, was huge or maintained it as 29 and then held it again as 30 and you just go okay this is I sent them my CV in a letter and it's quite I don't know I suppose that's quite old-fashioned now I think probably people email them or do and like let them know on social media or so I, I mean I don't know I mean I'm still quite from that old school like the hand of flies cookbook still feels quite it's quite an old-fashioned thing to be doing I think you know so I ended up I sent them my CV and a covering letter and let them know where we're at and this is what I'm doing and we're very very happy and very super pleased that they came and they supported from word go you know they turned up and and they didn't necessarily announce and they came and ate and within the first 10 months we we achieved that mission star at that point there were five pubs in the country with mission stars and we fully didn't expect to be one of them we, we just wanted to get open and go in and let them know where we were and want to start within 10 months which was i mean it was amazing it was amazing and then with all that hard work you then went on to get a second star in 2012 yeah. which must have yeah. just blown your mind do you remember where you were when you found out yeah actually Michelin videoed it it's quite weird so the first star when we won that chef friend of mine a guy called Daniel Clifford who at that point had two Michelin stars called me and the guide gets released at midnight on the internet mm -hmm. and he rang me and said you better go and check the internet because you want a Michelin star I was like what like I couldn't believe it so within that first 10 months and then when it got to be in the second star there were two restaurants that year that got two stars and it was ourselves and Sat Baines and Mission sent a young guy with a video recorder. You can see it, you find it on YouTube and they sent this guy to record 
the morning of the Michelin Guide release. And I was like, yeah, no problem. So that he came into the kitchen and filmed. And then as he was filming, he passed me a letter. And I opened the letter and the letter announces that as I read the letter out to the team, it tells you that you've won two Michelin stars, which was, I mean, it was amazing. It was just mind blowing. So they videoed the whole thing, which was fantastic. That's so great. That just means when you've got those levels of accolades, then obviously there's a certain amount of pressure then to keep going. So your industry as a whole is incredibly high pressure and you've been known to work hard and play hard. But you had a major change in lifestyle just after you won your second Michelin star where um, you decided to completely adjust your diet and your way of drinking. Uh, What triggered that decision? Age. I was getting to 40 years old and I don't regret being that guy for a minute, but I'd gone through about 10 years of being the biggest idiot around, like huge, massive drinker. And I, I, I mean, I freely admit that it, there is an issue with it and then there was an issue with excess and alcohol, but I, I wasn't like a bad drunk. I loved it. I loved it. And I wouldn't drink during the day. It would always be at night, but then it would always be huge amounts after service. And I really enjoyed the party style, lifestyle of it. I love everything about it, the late nights, the early mornings and being that massive idiot. And I look back at it and a lot of it is to do with the release of the pressures of being that chef, that person, running a business. Business. I mean, you know yourself, you run a business. It's very, very difficult. You can never let go. You know, we're doing this podcast now because we can't do a face to face or you can't do you're always having to think and work on your feet and adapt and, and grow. And from an employee's point of view, from a staff member's point of view, they just get on with what they've got to do, what they're being told, and they're learning as they go on a career path. But they're not active decisions. Every decision that you make or take affects people's lives and and that becomes such a huge responsibility as well as your own personal goals for wanting to get better and create and cook to a level and drive so I was always have been and once I entered that kitchen world incredibly driven I've always wanted to be the hardest the strongest the best the fastest the quickest at peeling a box of artichokes the best at cooking a piece of fish in whatever kitchen environment I found myself in I want to be number one and, and I drove myself in that kitchen from ownership to be in a self kind of aggressive drive, obsessive driven position that would be fired with a massive desire and burning fire with inside that when the end of that evening had done and we'd done everybody all right and it would all be okay that I would then heavily release that tension and that pressure that night by drinking a huge amount and that would be an ongoing cycle but it would be seven days a week relentlessly all the time and so you could look at it and go, yeah, that was incredibly bad and what a poor situation to be in. But actually, I wasn't suffering from depression or it's not an escape of my dull life. It's actually a release of a high tension, high pressure life. I mean, I think you get that as well with so many people with high pressure jobs. There are lots of addiction issues and there are lots of problems, whether it's within the hospitality industry, whether it's in the airline industry, whether it's a doctor or a surgeon, whether it's people that work in the city on big money contracts and all of these sort of things where there's a drive and there's high pressure there's also a lot of people with uh, I suppose release and addiction issues and I was just one of those I'm just one of those that then needed that release but without being that person we wouldn't be here now we wouldn't be having that conversation the hand of flowers cook we wouldn't be there we wouldn't have two mission stars without being that driven person so not for one minute do I regret it in fact I miss it quite a bit (laughs) but but it also is that point where I recognize that you can't be that person anymore and I got to 40 and I was so physically unhealthy that I really needed to make a change because otherwise there ain't going to be another 40 years I mean there weren't going to be another 10 so I was like right I've got to do I really have to do something about this I've got I've got to get my shit together so that's what it was about 
it's a big change to make, especially in the industry. It's a real social thing, isn't it? Like you say, at the end of the shift, you sit down, you have a drink. So, you know, I just think it's amazing you've done what you've done and whilst maintaining your position in the industry, because it's obviously quite a big shift working in pubs and not eating as much food and not drinking the alcohol. So congratulations. Thanks. It's all mentality. It's all in the head. It's all about being out how you view it and what you, how you see it and, and the way that you can position it. I feel that gap with work. We opened the coach, we got the butchers, we've got the restaurant in Manchester, the one in London, the event business. I fill it with other stress level things that you just go, right, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. So that gap has been filled with other things. And then I view what we sell Alcohol now is just something that I sell. I genuinely love the people that work in the world of alcohol brewers and winemakers. They've got the same enthusiasm for it as cheesemakers and, and any other form of great producer. But it is now just a product that I sell. It's not something that I'm actively involved in. I love the best fishermen. They're great. But I've got an allergy to lobster. I've got a shellfish allergy. We still <laughs> have it on the menu. doesn't mean to say I just view it as something that we sell. You mentioned, and obviously I mentioned in the introduction, that your Hand of Flowers cookbook, which I have a copy of right here, absolutely beautiful. Congratulations. We're recording this on the 12th of November, so this is the official publication day. It is a beautiful book, absolutely beautiful. Where did you, where did you come up with the idea? It's a recipe book, but it's, it's a celebration, isn't it, of the last 15 years of the Hand of Flowers. Where did you come up with the idea of doing it? Well, originally it was the first book that we signed for. So when the guys from Absolute and Bloomsbury first approached me to do the book, it was eight or nine years ago. And it was, can we do the Hand of Flowers cookbook, a pub cookbook? And we were like, yeah, okay, yeah, let's do that. And I just won Great British Menu. And then the follow on from that, the BBC asked if I would do a pub series. So we went, we've got to tie in the, the food that's accessible that people can cook at home. So it became about, the, the first book suddenly became about making kind of like pub food accessible. So it wasn't the Hand of Flowers cookbook. It was good, solid, hearty food. It was a bit like the Hand of Flowers, but not quite the same. And then we went on this journey. There was a second series and then there's a weight loss thing. And then there's a whole, the whole journey of everything that goes together in the world, you know, the world of publication, the world of television works and how it all kind of ties in. And there were all stories that really we felt needed to be told. Um, so the Hand of Flowers book kept getting pushed back and becoming not the most important however it was always the most important in my head but what it's done now is it's allowed us to be 15 years down the line it's a reflection of the journey of the hand of flowers if we'd done the hand of flowers cookbook as the first book that we signed to do it would be nowhere near as good as it is now it would have half the amount of experience and energy and recipes in and we would now be having to revisit it because the journey that that whole building and that pub and the people that are in it have been on has been amazing so it's much more now a reflective and also i suppose a great replication of the dishes that we do now they, they, they are the exact recipes that we follow at the hand of flowers there is nothing different in them they are two mission star dishes and there's some that have been on from the beginning when we first opened there's some dishes in that book that are part of the journey that wouldn't come back onto the menu they're not strong enough but they do show you the workings of how we get to get into that level. And then there's dishes on there that have been on there that were definitely strong enough and will definitely be coming back. And then there's dishes that are in the book that are there now that are that two-star level, which we're very, very proud of. So it's this wonderful reflection of 15 years of an amazing building. It is, and it's beautiful as well. So it'll be a really lovely addition to anyone's kitchen. I mean, you've got 70 recipes in the book. That's a decent number of recipes, but obviously you're looking at 15 years. How did you whittle it down? How did you decide what to include? Well, it's quite difficult. There was probably started off with around about 200 dishes that we went through from start to finish, about ones that we 
love, ones that we like, ones that we want to include. And then you have to start breaking it down into starters, mains and desserts. And then you go, okay, well, you need to get an active balance of, um, it can't be all protein. If it was me, it would just be loads of meat. And <laughs> But actually it has to be reflective of the menu. So it has to have some fish dishes in, it has to have some vegetarian dishes in, it has to be a true reflection of the dishes that read like a menu. So there's something there for everybody. But also it had to be reflective of over those 15 years. So it was quite an interesting thing to start scrubbing out the way. I mean, there can be a hand of flowers cookbook 2.0 easily of the dishes that we haven't included in there that easily represent the building as well. But we think these are the best 70 dishes that represent us, the building, and the journey that we've been on to get to this point. Obviously, we're recording this right now. We're in the second wave of national lockdown. The trade that you work in has been massively impacted by this and what your new TV programme is about, as well as a lot of other things that you've been talking about in the public eye. How are you dealing with the impact of COVID on your businesses and people around you? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, on a daily basis, you're having to pivot and move and change and adapt to guidelines that are coming through to understanding of it from everybody else's understanding of it we go from taking a hundred phone calls and emails a day of people cancelling their bookings to them being told that there might be a vaccine to get 150 emails of bookings so it's, it's a very fluid space to be in the hospitality industry is amazing at adapting and moving as an industry as itself on whole it, it spent millions of pounds in terms of health and safety due diligence in terms of risk assessment into trying to get everybody to be into a covid safe environment to then get shut and then to try and understand the curfew reasonings to try like all of it is quite is very very difficult for us to, as as operators to understand but we do go with it we are moving with it we thoroughly understand and respect the fact that there is a public health issue you know that isn't the problem i think the issue that we constantly face is direct messaging and understanding and, and leadership and being told this is the path this is the route there's so many different the whole tier system, the no tier system, the complete lockdown. It's very, very difficult from a guest point of view to understand, let alone us, and how you have to adapt and move your business with it. We struggle with, in terms of mentality, but in terms of us being able to do it, I've surrounded myself over the last 15 years with some of the most incredible, amazing, driven, talented people. The reason why the Hand of Flowers is so good is because I've surrounded myself with people that can do the jobs that I can't. <laughs> so there's a lot of incredible, amazing people that really do help build the business and get it to move and adapt and grow. So we are moving with it. We are hopeful that come the beginning of December, we can get reopened. And we are hopeful that those bookings start coming through again. We're quite fortunate that over the period of time, we've been very very well supported locally and nationally which puts us in a stronger position however the fact that there's so many variables and so so much in the way of misunderstanding of what's going on we are getting cancellations and bookings all the time so who who knows where we'll be but we are very we're very lucky that the minute the phone rings even if it's ringing to tell us they're not coming it's nice that they know the telephone number yeah well i really hope that things go well for you and the team at hand of flowers over christmas and that things go well in the following year tom it's been amazing talking to you today time shot passed i really appreciate you taking time out i know you're really busy and i would say good luck for the cookbook but quite frankly i don't think you need it i think it's going to fly off our shelves so thank you so much for coming on to mostly what's me thank you very much Cher. it's been a pleasure all of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.